there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. was just one of the U.S. Olympic athletes vaulted to sudden stardom by the Summer Games as the soundtrack to the excellent print film Purple Rain took the number one spot. President Reagan, during a routine radio vocal warm-up, joked that he had just signed legislation to outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. Russia was not amused, but Reagan was indeed re-nominated by the GOP at the Republican convention in Houston. The very last Volkswagen Rabbit rolled off the assembly line and is still being driven today by that guy who sells the really good asset at the fish shows. And finally, in a story that begins beautifully, but which has a very sad punchline in a few years, Ronald Reagan announced NASA's teacher in space program. Let's hold on to the optimism of that announcement, though, as we buckle down to tackle the very weird lineup of movies released in August of 1984. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome once again to 80s All Over. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, what's up, sir? Hello, I miss the Volkswagen Rabbit. Drew, what's the weirdest car your parents had when we were kids? Uh, my dad loved old cars, so for a little while he went through a series of convertibles, but there was a, a period where we actually owned a Volkswagen thing. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't even remember that. My dad had, I'm not lying, look it up kids, an AMC Pacer. Ooh, wow. Our neighbors had Le Car. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, yeah, there, I frequently uh, see cars in movies that I wish we had stopped at. I wish design had stopped like at a certain point. There's a Jaguar from around 9091 where that that was it. We were done. Cars were perfect. <laughs> so. I want to say thank you to the three or four listeners who stayed with us after last week's controversial episode in which Drew <laughs> disliked the never ending story. I want to apologize to you six <laughs> remaining listeners. And I want to thank Drew who put the umbrella up over me not liking Purple Rain. Uh, look, I, I think for the most part, the conversations back were not unexpected. And I get it. Hell, in my own apartment, my position on the film is controversial. My girlfriend remembers that her son, when he was young, that was a movie that she showed him frequently. And part of the reason why was because it was gentle. And there wasn't a lot of kids live action movies that weren't Herbie movies that were gentle and that had sort of reading and fantasy at the center of it. 
that's perfectly valid as a reason yeah, to like but something. I guess as we discussed last week, there are other films that also deal with fantasy and children and, and like time bandits that are good. We're going to have more of those and we're going to get into movies. I think there's a couple this week that people are going to get upset about. But over over the course of the show, I think you guys will get a real sense of where we land and why. And I'm realizing that I would not call myself a fan of fantasy films, the traditional definition of fantasy, because I think most of them are terrible. I'm a fan of the potential of them, but I don't think I'm a fan of fantasy films if the majority of them are movies that I have real giant problems with. Well, Drew, you know who never made a fantasy film? Uh, who would that be? John Cassavetes. Let us discuss his penultimate film, Love Streams. I'm almost not crazy now. I just don't care. Well, love is dead. Love is a fantasy little yeah. girls have. Love is a stream. It's continuous. It doesn't stop. No, it does stop. What's your take on Castavetes as a whole? I respect him, and I think he occupies a very particular place in American independent film. I also think he's a man out of time. I think if he had worked 15, 20 years later, he would have made a more films. He would have made them with a little bit more support. And I think he would have had the room to experiment even further. I think as it is, you know, he, he acted in order to basically earn money to pay for movies that no Hollywood studio would touch. And he had that sort of working ensemble of actors, including his wife, Jenna Rollins, and uh, guys would drop in and out. Uh, Seymour Castle was one that he used a lot. Peter Falk, he used a lot. I love that he built this ensemble troupe that would make movies that were very personal and lacerating. And I think Love Streams is a really hard one to jump onto because it's the end. It is a roller coaster in terms of, I hate this. No, no, I don't. I All right, now I don't like, you know, it really, it moves in fits and starts. And it's like, well, it's over two hours and it's very quiet and dry. Uh, it's basically about a novelist who is just uh, happy just subsisting as a wealthy novelist. He lives with his ne'er-do-well sister, played by his wife. Then he gets a sudden unexpected uh, surprise that he has a young son who is dropped off at his house for 24 hours. And then he promptly takes the kid to Vegas and good things do not happen. It's weird watching this after Marvin and Ty, where I feel like, it's more John Cassavetes trying to deal with the kid and be a good parent and the shape of a film that you recognize. This is they drop the kid on him and he just continues to be an unrelenting piece of shit. I am terrified every second that kid's in his care in this film. I will say this. When you talk about canon and you talk about the terrible things they made and we've got a whole catalog of them this month. Um, you also have to point out that then they threw money at Cassavetes and let him make this at the end. And like, it's weird, the shotgun approach to financing that they had, because their names are on the craziest assortment of films. Yeah. And when, the more you dig into canon, the more you realize is that they just wanted to produce stuff that would make money. And sometimes award films make money. 
So whether, you know, it's like, oh, we got to make a bunch of movies with Chuck Norris because he makes money. Oh, and you know what? On a smaller scale, we'll throw some money at this guy because if we get some Oscar buzz on this movie, we'll make some money. And how much could love streams have cost? Like those guys pinched every penny to make sure that every bit of production value and sometimes not even that. You know why they saved money on John Castavetti's love streams? So Cannon could spend the money on Miles O'Keefe. In Sword of the Valiant. The field of honor. A knight's courage is put to the test. Miles O'Keefe is Sir Gawain, the greatest knight of all. The ultimate challenge awaits him. We have an appointment at the Green Chapel before the sun goes down. You've had your cut. The game is over. I make the rules, boy. I make the rules. Sean Connery and Miles O'Keefe in Sword of the Valiant. An epic tale of a legendary knight. Miles and Miles and Miles O'Keefe. In the 80s, you'd see this a lot. The lead is Miles O'Keefe. Who's backing him up? Sean Connery, Peter Cushing, Trevor Howard, John Reese davies <laughs> The crazy thing is they had a choice to make. It's 1980, what is it, three when you're financing this? Late 82, early 83 when you're financing this, and you have a choice between Miles O'Keefe and Mark Hamill, and you go with Miles O'Keefe. I don't even understand that in the context of the time. Like, Tarzan had already tanked, and Mark Hamill was Luke Skywalker coming off of Return of the Jedi. It, Maybe he wanted uh, 10% more money than Miles O'Keefe did. So Yeah, it's crazy. But, you know, your point about Sean Connery is this is the era where Sean Connery was sort of wandering in the wilderness and was not a movie star by the classical definition anymore and was barely working. Okay, for those who don't know the story of the film, it is about Sir Gawain. It is the story of the uh, the Green Knight coming to challenge King Arthur's court. He'll give any knight a chance. What he'll do is let them take a swing at his neck first with a sword. If he lives, he gets to take a swing at their neck. So Miles O'Keefe steps up, isn't even a knight. No knight will do it. Miles O'Keefe steps up, says he'll do it, cuts his head off. The green knight picks his head up, puts it back on, and then says, you're not even a man yet. I won't kill you for a year. Go grow a beard and come back. This reminded me of that character in America's Gods, played by uh, Peter Stormare. It was the same challenge. Certainly the Green Knight is, you know, there's a long tradition of this story and this story form being dropped through things. What cracks me up is when you're casting the Green Knight, you're looking for the equivalent of now we would cast, you know, a giant bodybuilder and and we have gotten to the point where we have guys like Dave Bautista or The Rock or we have bodybuilders who look a certain size. Sean Connery was Mr. Universe. He was that equivalent for this era. And I look at him now and he's just some dude's. He's just somebody's dad. He's wearing a tree in this movie. It's hilarious. I'm pretty sure it's Kate Blanchett's costume from Thor Ragnarok. I think he's dressed identically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for Zardoz, this movie might have the funniest stills ever. This is the second time this guy made this movie. Stephen Weeks, who wrote and directed it, had made a previous version of this in England called Gwen and the Green Knight. And this guy is now, I guess he restores castles. That's what he does for a living. And he owns a castle and is fascinated by medieval history. I think he's a historian and an architect, and that's his background. Well, he sure ain't a filmmaker. Bing, and that's the thing is this myth must have been up his nose. Why would you make the same movie twice? I don't get that at all. Hey, who told you to put that wig on Miles O'Keefe? Good oh, my God. God. It's I something else maybe draw comparisons to the once popular Prince Valiant comic strip? Well, and that's weird because, you know, obviously now Prince Valiant is uh, not a reference any modern kid gets or any modern really audience gets. 
it was barely a reference we got. Prince Valiant was a 50s relic that was still kind of a holdover in the early 80s. Yeah, you're right. Like, that's kind of what the signifiers were for fantasy and this kind of medieval movie. And I'm bored by all this stuff. Let's just move on because we got a bad movie. It's an obscure sex comedy, and it has more fascinating dirt that went on behind the scenes for the 10 years prior to its production. So let us briefly get into Joy of Sex. I always said I'd wait for the love of my life, but I guess I'll just have to settle for sex. Some girls get all the Somewhere between virginity and senility is paradise. Get ready for Joy of Sex, rated R. A producer wants to pay you a lot of money, and he says, I want you to adapt this into a movie. And he slides a book across the table, and it is a sober, mature sex manual for adults. I understand why a film company would go, okay, well, there's a name value. But boy, talk about something that people bounced off of. I assumed that the original concept was going to be an anthology comedy, just like everything you always wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. And it would be a series of funny vignettes from some of the National Lampoon writers. It was going to be National Lampoon's Joy of Sex. John Hughes was involved at one point. And what happened, Drew? A, John Belushi was one of the names that was uh, sort of contingent on financing. In a story that is very famously uh, recounted in Wired, Towards the very end of his life, it was one of the scripts that he had in the bungalow that he was staying in at the Chateau Marmont, and he cried to Penny Marshall at one point because he read the script, and he's like, they're going to put me in a diaper. They're going to make me a baby. This is what my career is. He hated the script so much that he considered leaving acting, and Maddie Simmons tried to keep this thing alive after Belushi died. It went through a couple more hands, and then... They moved on to a second concept. And very famously, there's the movie adaptation by Charlie Kaufman, where he ran into this problem when they asked him to adapt uh, Susan Orland's The Orchid Thief. And he didn't know how to do it. And he ended up writing a movie in which he was trying to adapt The Orchid Thief. Well, that happened with this. Charles Grodin was hired after the National Lampoon take to do a version of it. And he bounced off it so hard that he turned in a script about Charles Grodin getting hired to adapt Joy of Sex and failing. And that movie got made later as Movers and Shakers, which we'll get to later in the decade. And so eventually, at some point, they had another script that Martha Coolidge was attached to, and they had this name and this property still floating around, and they married the two of them, and this is the result. Now, Martha Coolidge had just come off a hit of Valley Girl, her first feature, but her third feature would be a vast improvement over Joy of Sex, and it feels like she was kind of hired at the last minute and plugged in on a teen sex comedy. I don't think any director could have saved this. What shocked me more, even more than Martha Coolidge's involvement is that one of the credited writers is the woman who wrote The Outsiders. How does that happen? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like I said, it went through so many hands. I thought it was a little dull, but I think it's generally good natured in terms of the sex stuff when it does happen is all about it's sex with consent and it's it's handled in a way that is not gross and it's not rapey and nasty. And it's clearly Martha Coolidge, like clearly a filmmaker approached this who was trying to not make it a skeevy exploitation film. It's just dull. 
I think it's as bad as a lot of the teen sex comedies we've covered, but in a different way. It's it is a little bit more mature. It is a little bit less, to use my favorite adjective, leering. And it also does have some likable actors: Michelle Mayrink and Colleen Camp, Lisa Langlois. Seeing Michelle Mayrink carry a movie. That actually helps. She is different than 90% of the leads in these movies. And Colleen Camp is a very brash, confident. That, that, that's funny. It's a movie that is the very, very soft punchline to an insane amount of development energy. And the fact that this is what Joy of Sex ended up being is such a weird ending to that story. After all this rigmarole and all this hassle, they just looked at what was popular the last two years and went, look, we got the title Joy of Sex. Just put it in a fucking high school and be done with it. Yeah. (laughs) Drew, I have a question for you. What are your favorite Seven Samurai knockoffs? Seven Samurai knockoffs. Well, obviously, I love The Magnificent Seven. I think that's one of the very best. Yeah, probably the best, yeah. I think it's one of those forms that if you do it right, it's really hard to screw up. In fact, Battle Beyond the Stars. Battle Beyond the Stars is a very good one. Bugs Life, in a way. Uh, Bugs Life is a great reference. A lot of people forget how closely that hues to the model, but absolutely. I think Galaxy Quest has a little bit of that formula built in. There's a lot of movies that have definitely taken their cues and built very smart and interesting and different things from it. We forgot one. What's that? The Seven Magnificent Gladiators. Go ahead, Drew. I'll give you 30 seconds on this before we move on to a real movie. Um, This was part of that burn-off deal that uh, Canon and MGM had, where MGM was releasing a ton of Canon product. Uh, It was a movie that sat around for a little while. Lou Ferrigno's in it. It is terrible, even by the standards of Italian gladiator movies. Sybil Danning is in it, so if you are literally just watching movies for the ladies... There you go. But there's nothing to recommend about this one. Speaking of Lou Ferrigno, let's now move to Ireland to discuss Helen Mirren in Cal. (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah, speaking of. Warner Brothers and Goldcrest present a love story that dares to ask the question. Would you die for me? Cal. It was a question he had to face. One dilemma he couldn't run away from. Would you die for me? Like the guilty secret he bore in a land dark with secrets. Marcella, the girl who asked, Would you die for me? Out of the pain of Northern Ireland, a passionate love was born. Cal. I just watched this three hours ago. I am very moved by this. I like this movie a lot. This is a uh, forbidden romance between a widow and a member, a hopefully former member of the IRA and the forces that bring them together and then, of course, inevitably tear them apart. This is really well made. And, of course, Helen Mirren is phenomenal. And uh, her co-star, John Lynch, also great. There was this wave of Irish films that started happening a little bit before this. And there's a, a whole group of filmmakers that came out of Ireland in this time. And The Troubles are a major part of what they were making movies about because it was really the only way for them to talk about it. It was such a politically charged thing. It was such a politically charged moment and people were dying. And so there is an urgency to a lot of this filmmaking. Uh, Neil Jordan, when we just talked about Danny Boy or Angel, even though I don't think he quite landed that punch, you get that it's urgent. This is like this is young people writing about scary shit happening two miles away from their home. People forget that Mirren had this long career before she kind of became the older celebrated Helen Mirren. And 
a lot of her young work was very carnal and that and that's what she was known for you know age of consent uh, this is one that she was known for cook the thief his wife and her lover there there is a very powerful sexual element to Cal that is not soft pedaled and is not handled in a perfume commercial kind of way it's what the movie's about it's about the fact that this attraction is very dangerous and it's at a time where every choice matters and everybody's watching and everybody's paying attention and you should not be doing certain things and i i'm with you i think it's very effective and john lynch is one of those guys everybody knows they've seen him in a million things but they may not know him they may not know his name and they may not know that you know he's been acting as long as he has but this is a terrific performance by him uh, Drew, from one film that deals with sexuality in a frank and mature fashion, we move to the latest film from director John Derrick. Uh, this one's not about sex or nudity. Surely he, at some point, got over that and just decided to make movies about people, right? A bold and beautiful young woman embarks on a noble mission. I have come all this way to give you something, my virginity. I will take your gift with great happiness. Yearning to learn the ways of love. But yet to be fulfilled. He wants his lips. She continues her search. Will you show me everything? To indulge your every desire. Bolero. It's an experience you'll never forget. No, it's entirely about sex, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> George Kennedy thing makes that appropriate. My dad had a subscription to Playboy. And Playboy pushed this movie hard as this was a big release for them. This was they were talking about Dear Penthouse Forum. <laughs> I, I'm this is it's funny because I read I read every movie magazine there was. So I would read Time, I would read Starlog, and yeah, I absolutely would read my dad's Playboy cover to cover, while of course looking at the new pictures, but I would read all the stuff that they wrote about movies. And they pushed this as, oh no, this is gonna change the game. This is an an X-rated movie for adults. It's a real serious movie this time. Perspective is something that you and I are, are big fans of on this show. So even though it's terrible, having watched it recently, does Bolero deserve the trashing that it got in 1984? It's really an ugly movie. And it's a movie that plays into a lot of weird and gross stereotypes. It almost, at the beginning, feels like it's going to be a real movie. Her running up against romantic bullshit and finding out that it's all bullshit and maybe that's clever. Nope, it's not that at all. It turns into an excuse for nude scenes that aren't really sex scenes because she doesn't really ever have sex until the end of the film, but there's a lot of excuses for nudity. Her matador husband is, uh, how would you put it, Drew? Gordon the crotch. Let's put it that way. Catches a hook in the hooter. And his penis doesn't work, and she goes on a worldwide torrid quest to give away her virginity to a suitable mate. The one that skeeves me out in this movie is Olivia Diabo. They're playing her as 14, and they spend a lot of time with her naked. And you can almost see John Derrick looking at her like she's the next model in the showroom. Well, considering that that's what he did, that he traded in his model wives for younger models who basically looked like the same woman. You know, when you go from Ursula Andress to Bo Derek, you're not painting outside the lines. You're it, there's, you have a type man and Olivia Diabo is clearly on that continuum, which makes the whole thing super creepy. It might as well be called grooming the movie because it's literally about a, the matador has her on tap 
And she's totally down for it. She's like, I'm his. I can't wait. We won't get to John Derrick's final film because it's a 1990 film called Ghosts Can't Do It. I'm so happy. I'm so happy that we're finished with John Derrick at this point. Yeah, let's just move on. And now it's time for the upper class film review. Drew McWeeny takes a look at Jean-Luc Godard's first name, Carmen. Godard is another one where my appetite for Godard movies is very small. I really like the early blast of movies that he made where it was all raw energy and it was film criticism as filmmaking. And then I think the longer he went on, the more it became so self-reflexive that I'm less interested. I'm just not that fascinated by the inner life of how Jean-Luc Godard relates to media and movies. This is not really an adaptation of Carmen, the the opera. You've got Godard playing a guy living in a mental institution. You've got robbery and kidnapping. You have a production of Bizet's musical going on sort of in the background. It is a lot of moving parts and a lot of sort of meta games being played. And the best stuff in it is the story about a, a young couple, uh, her as a robber, him as a bank guard. Marushka Detmers, who stars in it, I think is good. But even at 85 minutes, not much there for me. You know who I prefer to Jean-Luc Godard? Who's that? Jean-Luc Picard. What? Wow. Drew, every week you try to like sneak in a TV movie into this show, and I won't have it anymore. What is going on? I'm not the one trying to sneak the TV movie in. Michael Landon is the one who tried to sneak it in when he got... Sam's son released the theaters. So what basically what we're gathering here is that the late lovable Michael Landon did not have an ego deficiency. Well, more than that, this movie is and I, I'm being kind when I say this insane, like he's an insane person. And I didn't realize it. I always thought Michael Landon was, oh, the nice guy who made the little house on the prairie show. And then he was an angel for 15 years. And oh, and he was a werewolf for a little while when he was young. Fine. No, he's a crazy person because this is his, like you said, autobiography. It begins with Michael Landon playing Michael Landon, showing up in his small hometown for the premiere of his new movie. And we very pointedly don't know the name of the movie at the beginning of the film. And he looks up at the theater and he says, we did it. And then we flash back to see who he's talking to and what they did. And the entire thing really, to me, ultimately plays as... Michael Landon, Mr. Hollywood, going back to a small town to humiliate a guy who made his dad unhappy once. Within that, it also seems to be a story about a kid who believes he is the modern reincarnation of Samson and grows his hair so that he can win track meets and becomes embroiled in a controversy over whether or not he will cut it. This movie is so boring, so strained, so unrealistic. I I swear to God, I had to watch it in two sittings. I hated it. I will give it one silver lining. Eli Wallach could not give a bad performance if he tried. And that's his that's his real life wife playing his wife in the movie. And they get the details of a couple who really don't communicate very right. Like they are every scene that they play where he has to get up and leave the room. Oh, that opening scene where she's like, what are you doing in the bathroom? Oh, why? Parents here, if you think your son is spending a little too much time in the bathroom, here's a tip. 
Shut up about it. <laughs> like, don't, don't humiliate him. No, no, hover. Oh, my God. What are you trying to create, a psychopath? Yeah. No, no, just hover and uh, yell at him. Because I know nobody's ever going to watch this film. Please don't watch this film. Please, let me just ruin it for you. His dad is a writer who never wrote professionally because his mom beat the dream out of him. So dad ultimately starts to believe in his son, even though mom doesn't. And dad supports him with his, I believe that you're getting strength from not cutting your hair so that you can throw the javelin really far. And at the very end, his son wins this meet. His dad has a heart attack and can't get to the meet. And he finds that his dad has written a screenplay for him that he has left. And that screenplay is what the whole framing device is. It is a movie that he wrote about his son not cutting his hair also called Sam's Son. So the whole punchline of this film is Michael Landon walking outside to look up at the marquee of a theater, playing a movie called Sam's Son, and then making the theater manager who humiliated his dad eat shit. Mr. Orman. Mr. Orman. Jake Bellow. Remember? Jake Bellow, your father's boss. Yeah, yeah Mr. Bellow. Mr. Orman, I just want you to know that it is an honor to have you at one of my theaters. An honor. Oh, thank you. I just want you to know you got five lights out on the marquee. I expect to see them lit when I come out. Don't have anybody else do what you do. Don't be lit, Mr. Orman. That's a weird reason to make a movie. Reminded me of Blazing Saddles. I'm like, wait, so we're in the movie? Wait, what's going on? (laughs) All right. So we move on from Michael Landon's magical hair to Rob Lowe digging those Oxford blues. He's a gambler. He's a rocker. He's a red-blooded, all-American kid who falls for a blue-blooded English lady and cons his way into Oxford University. He came to Oxford to meet a girl. But he got something. Even more important. The chance to be a winner. Rob Lowe's got tickets. Oxford Blues. Here's an opportunity to title a film correctly and actually get one good joke into a movie. They should have called this film... The Ugly American, because he's super pretty and he spends the whole movie being a giant, colossal dick. Not only a dick, an international stalker. (laughs) Yes, yes. He sees a a princess. What is she? She's a lady. She's vaguely royal family. Vaguely celebrity, right? So he sees her photo in the tabloids and he's madly in love with her. So he, through wonderful 80s computer technology, bullshits his way into Oxford. There he meets... A New Jersey girl, played by Ali Sheedy, then virtually every Brit he meets, he's a dick to. Some are dicks back, but he's a dick to everyone. Kind of gets rebuffed by the girl he went there for and learns, Drew, some valuable lessons. How does he get the money to go to England? Oh, yeah, he gets the money by having sex with a woman. He gambles with her money. They win, and she gives him a big fat wad of cash, and he tries. she tries to give him more. He says no, and then she gives him a sports car because he's Rob Lowe with the magic D. What a sympathetic lead. Boy, what a relatable way 
to set that movie in motion so that I feel like, yeah, here's a guy I relate to and I really hope he gets what he wants. And this is as a star vehicle. This is persuasively a career ender. This should not have gotten him more work. He is unlikable. He photographs weird. And look, Rob Lowe, undeniably one of the prettiest human beings on the planet. But in this movie, they can't figure out how to make him appealing. Like, it's a really strangely shot film. It's it, they do not understand what appeal, if any, he has. And the the character is so if you're going to have a character scam their way into Oxford to woo a woman he doesn't know, you, you got to do a lot of legwork to make us like that guy. Uh, and they go the other way. From the minute he gets uh, laid and a huge cash infusion, you're just like, all right, yeah, I really care what's happening to this guy. Anyway, Drew, let's move on to a much better film. The umpteenth collaboration between Ismail Merchant, the producer, James Ivory, the director, and Ruth Prar Jabvala. These three, as producer, director, screenwriter, what did they make, 23 films together? Yeah, and this was about a decade into them working together. This was about the 10th film. And this one, The Bostonians, takes place in, uh, well, obviously Boston, during the suffragette era. It's got Vanessa Redgrave as a woman deeply involved in that movement. And she has a uh, young ingenue. She's bringing up a public speaker. And uh, then good old Christopher Reeve shows up, being all handsome and male and maybe woos this young girl away from Vanessa Redgrave, who maybe, just maybe, is interested in this young woman for more than just political reasons. It's an adaptation of a Henry James novel, and the Henry James novel is, I think, much more on the uh, discreet side about the potential relationship or the potential interest, to the point where if you're going to read into it, it is as implicit as possible. And I think the film leans just a little bit more on that. And as a result, I think that thread becomes really compelling and interesting because I don't know that Basil, uh, the Christopher Reeve character, I don't know that he's ever romantically interested so much as uh, he sees her as a conquest and as, and as this is the role that is supposed to be fulfilled and she's right for that role. And there's it's not love in the sense so much as it is duty and cultural, all the st that stuff. And I think what's fascinating is even if there's no romantic relationship between Olive and the younger woman, what Olive wants for her is she wants her to be an important figure in this movement. She wants her to be the political figure that maybe Olive couldn't because her generation wasn't allowed. And so she sees in her so much more that she can be than just some man's wife. So even if it's not about be with me romantically. It's, I don't want that for you because you can do more than that. And that's a really interesting sort of theme because it's a moment where that was the first time that conversation really started to happen. It's Redgrave's movie. Uh, she was nominated for it. She's a force of nature. She's absolutely powerful in this movie. My question to you, Drew, is knowing that we both have a strong affection for the late Christopher Reeve, how do you think he holds up in a uh, classical uh, British drama? I don't know that I totally think it's a drama. I think this is a comedy in many ways. I think he gets the the wit and the sort of nimble verbal thing that's going on and plays it really well. And I think he and Redgrave are great together. I would say that Reeve acquits himself nicely. He doesn't do anything spectacular, but nor does he embarrass himself. So uh, raise a glass to Christopher Reeve. Now we move on to 
a very interesting film about two young girls. It is the debut of Marissa Silver. This one's called Old Enough. It is the dramatic winner of the very first Sundance Film Festival. It is a charming little movie, and it's very authentically observed. Uh, it's two girls uh, played by Sarah Boyd and Rainbow Harvest. Uh, Lonnie is 12. I mean, she and a young 12. But because it's New York and because it's 1984, she has a lot of autonomy and a lot of independence. I mean, I my Toshi's 13 and he's not this. I would yeah, not She's very precocious, smart. She meets this uh, a friend who is middle class. Her family is a lot more raucous and the dad is played by Danny Aiello. Uh, and we should mention that Lonnie's little sister is played wonderfully by a very young Alyssa Milano. A little bug in this movie. She's teeny tiny. But I really I think Sarah Boyd is terrific as Lonnie and 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 has one of those young movie faces where you can see her thinking so much of the movie is just her observing the way the world works and her first time seeing like shoplifting the first time seeing tenement buildings and like it's fascinating just watching her learn about the world. It's a phenomenal performance. There's not a a speck of artifice in this girl's performance and she's a natural. She's now a very established editor. She's worked on tons of things. Yeah. And I think Rainbow Harvest as the uh, the other girl is really good. She's the loud brassy one, a little older, a little But I also like that she's she's very religious, so in some ways she's very young compared to Lonnie who's been raised by parents who are atheists and who are sort of mainstream New York intellectuals and are raising her to be sort of a challenging, thoughtful kid. And I don't know the actress who played her mom, but she has a couple of great scenes. Her dad is kind of standoffish, but you, you kind of get that uh, Lonnie's home life is a little bit cold. She wants things that Karen has. Karen wants things that she has. I was really afraid from the title of this movie that it was going to be all about sexual situations and exploration and that it was going to be, is she old enough? Because it's a movie about a 12-year-old. I don't really want to see that. It's not that at all. It's really about your first friend who lets you know that there's a larger world than your parents let you know. It feels very autobiographical, but I can't tell which girl Silver is, which to me indicates good writing. And her sister is also a filmmaker. Uh, we've talked about Joan Silver before. Oh, OK. I didn't know they were sisters. And I really like this. I think as a debut, um, this is a, a real announcement by Marissa Silver that she's an observational, sensitive and really mature filmmaker for a first-time director. And it's a shame that it would take four more years for Marissa Silver to get another film. We will get to Permanent Record in 1988. But for now, let us move on to an aimless, ridiculous movie that feels like it was written in 1955. Grandview, USA is a great place to grow up. It's got friendly people, wonderful neighbors, concerned parents. Are you on drugs? It's a great little town. Unless you're a kid with great big dreams. Jamie Lee Curtis, C. Thomas Howell, Patrick Swayze. From the director of The Blue Lagoon and Grease. Grandview, USA. It's a great place to start from when you're going places. The hell is this movie? What is this movie, dude? Who is this movie about? It's about everyone. Is it? <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis runs a demolition derby. C. Thomas Howell is a whiny wimp. Patrick Swayze is a likable lug who gets shit on by literally everyone. I spotted an M. Emmett Walsh sighting. There is one. I blink and you miss it. John Cusack. And 
as if she's poured it in from another movie. Her every scene is fantastic and everything around it is terrible. Jennifer Jason Lee as a like sex kitten who keeps cheating on Patrick Swayze unapologetically. Jennifer Jason Lee is clearly having a ball playing this character and everybody else in this movie is dull. We're in the middle of a weird run of Jennifer Jason Lee movies because we're going to do this and then we've got the wildlife next month. I want people to know my biases and I'm telling you now Jennifer Jason Lee is and has always been one of my favorite actors and every time she comes up in a movie I will make an asterisk and I'm telling you the truth if you can sit through Grandview USA I guarantee you will agree with me. That she is one of the highlights of the film. She is. She's good in it. It's clearly a different movie. And I don't understand, because this is Randall Kleiser, who we last talked about with Summer Lovers, and uh, you know the director of Grease and the Blue Lagoon. I really don't get it. I don't understand who he is. I don't get... You know, here's the thing with directors, Drew. I think you'll agree. When you have some success, you either become a signature, like a name, like a Spielberg, like a Zemeckis, like a name... Or you become a carpetbagger, which means like, well, he directed Grease, so we'll give him the job. And then a lot of your films, none of them have any distinct Randall Kleiser feeling. I'm just curious, like, what did he see in this? Well, here's my theory. You have to direct something every X amount of months to keep your health insurance. And this showed up at the right month. Oh, I think I think you're probably right, man. I it felt like people who didn't get it watched like Stop Making Sense. And, and said, oh, this is what's cool. We'll interrupt our narrative with a bunch of daydream music video sequences. It's a bad movie. And Jamie Lee Curtis is literally in a different film where she it's a movie about this woman who inherited a business from her father. And she's trying to keep it open while the small town colludes against her to close it. And what movie is that, though? How does that have anything to do with C. Thomas Howell? Like <laughs> this also be, doesn't this also begin a series of movies in which C. Thomas Howell sleeps with women considerably older than him for like really flimsy reasons. Uh, that's a big thing in the eighties. Uh, I mean, God, Patrick Dempsey made his career out of it. Speaking of things that were big in the eighties, let us now move on to married dude wants to fuck a hottie. The movie. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, the woman in red. This is Teddy Pierce. Now take a closer look. He's a good husband and father. He's a mild-mannered executive who has become totally obsessed with... The woman in red. The woman in red. Will his wife understand? Will his secret admirer be able to cope? Perhaps his friends will give him sound advice. What am I supposed to say? You say to her, hello, angel face, you want to see my goods? I just want to say... Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner, and Gene... No, 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 Kelly LeBrock. She's the woman in red. This is depressing. This one depressed me. I don't want to watch Gene Wilder be a scumbag. I don't want to see it. I don't... It is a poorly conceived movie. It's an adaptation of a French film. We are definitely at an age now where there's not a, a whole industry of movies about guys who are just having a crisis about their dick. And the 80s were a huge, huge time for that. Just dick crisis movies. And I don't relate. I don't really understand. I've never understood it. It's like art that exists to justify terrible behavior. When scripts like this come in, the producers, the lion chair of them were men, obviously. A, oh, there's a big market out there for these comedies about men going through midlife crises. Like 10, 10 was a big hit. You know, either that or these producers, I want to make this movie because I want to see the movie about married dude who wants to fuck a hottie. And and either either reason to make this movie is not good. Well, and there's, there's certainly movies to be made about exploring the dynamics of any marriage. But 
these comedies are all driven by the notion that we're going to relate in some way to his crisis. And I don't. I Not only do I not relate, but I actively dislike it. Him and his buddies travel around in a pack, and they reminded me of the Bachelor Party crew 10 years later. There's a, a strange relationship that I have with Gene Wilder as a film icon, where the movies of his that I love, I love unreservedly. And there is a innocence about Gene Wilder that I find really compelling and interesting in a lot of those movies. I watch this movie and I realize, oh, you know what? I project on people a lot. And we all do this. We have our relationships with the persona, not with the person, but with the persona. The Gene Wilder that I'm a fan of might not exist, might not have ever existed. I don't think that's the case. He wrote this movie. He wrote this movie. I know, but I mean, this to me looks like a guy who was mostly known for PG level comedy trying to move into sex farce and it didn't it didn't really fit him. Yeah, but why is this interesting to you? What about the story compel and the movie literally ends with he's gone through all of this to the point where he's jumps off a building that he's on the ledge of because of his infidelity that didn't end up happening. He, he ended up stopping himself and realizing, oh, no, I love my wife and I love my family. And what am I doing? And then on the way down, sees the new girl that's got his attention and he's going to do it again. I'm going to make this charming movie that justifies that this is how men think. And we're all like this and we're all dogs. It's fine. And I, it's gross. I knew this one wouldn't date well, but I thought it would still, you know, given the cast, it would still make me laugh. It was all crickets all throughout. Now, moving on, I haven't had to apologize to the hardcore horror fans in a while, but it's about time. Let's dig into the endlessly grungy and dirty and filthy Chud. Beneath the city of New York are living catacombs, unfit for anything human. Chud. Check your basement and your bathroom. But remember, the dark is their place. The night is their time. And tomorrow, the only things living in the city of New York will be Chud. Chud. All right, Drew, here's my theory on Chud. It seems to have some level of cachet among horror geeks of a certain age, as if it's like a cult film or a, uh, a, a hidden treasure. It's not. And my reasoning that people still consider it fondly and talk about it is because they like telling people what the title acronym is. I think they just like saying the title. I think it's that simple. I don't think it's anything more than that. I think Chud is a title that when you hear it, you go, oh, cannibal is the Cuban underground bullet. That's it. That's all the fun there is. There's no more fun than that. For those who could not understand Drew's 14-year-old pervy little boy voice, that was cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers, Chud. But as we know in the weggy, mega cool twist ending, Chud also has another acronym. But we won't ruin anything because if you're watching this, you deserve every morsel of fun you can get. John Hurd gives a bad performance, which is weird. He never does. Daniel Stern in, in crazy hairdo and smeared with dirt. All right. The movie is about homeless people who are getting killed by the, at first we don't know what. And then we discover there's creatures underground. But then we discover that those creatures might also actually be homeless people. It's all the circle of life. This movie is the origin for The Lion King. Everybody knows that. It feels like Doug Cheek really wants to be Larry Cohen. 
Eh, Abel Ferrara, more like. I feel like what he wanted to do was make this movie about homelessness and about toxic waste and about how we treat our garbage, whether it's human or whatever. I feel like he thought, okay, I'm gonna. This is I got it. I got it. I know. He does not connect a dot. Like none of it comes together. This movie feels like it was edited with a baseball bat. It's just like scenes are just cut out almost mid conversation. It is clumsy, and the monsters are poorly imagined and not worth your time to wait to get to. There's a couple of hero shots towards the end where I'm like, all right, they're all right, but boy, too little, too late. My apologies to the hardcore 80s horror fans, but Chud is a dud. So, Scott. We're going to record in a couple of weeks, or I'm going to, a special bonus episode with my parents who are coming out here for the first time in a couple of years. And it's going to be an episode where I'm going to have my dad watch about seven or eight movies that he took me to see in the theater. And I'm going to call the episode, What the Hell Were You Thinking? One of the movies that we're going to talk about is our next film, Tightrope. Killer is a Caucasian, blood type O, about in his mid forties. Any suspects? Hundred and twenty thousand of them. Anything you'd like me to tell the mayor? Yeah, he's one of them. A cop on the edge. Clint Eastwood, tightrope. I thought it was an action movie when I was a kid. I watched it. I felt very uncomfortable. I thought it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of just kind of forgot about it. Now, I will give you my thoughts on the film as a grown-up man. There's a lot of it where it's like kind of ballsy for at this point in his career for Clint Eastwood to make a detective procedural that deals with sex crimes and stalking and tries to do it in a mature way. And there's even a scene of dialogue in which he implies that he might have had homosexual sex. For Clint Eastwood to do that in 1984, that's like him clearly trying to go out of his comfort zone. I think that the movie on a whole is just very familiar. I, I give it props for not being exploitative like a 10 to midnight, but it kind of deals in that same grungy area. I don't think it's a very interesting sojourn. Wow. So it's credited to Richard Tuggle as writer-director. Uh, he did write it but largely did not direct the film. Clint directed this movie. This is actually the reason that a movie star is not allowed to take over from a director because Clint used to do that and um, did it on the outlaw Josie Wales to Phil Kaufman. He did it here. I, I find the, the Eastwood that is most interesting, the stuff like the beguiled or play Misty for me, where he pushed back against notions of what was masculine or um, what was mainstream sexuality at the time. Clint was clearly curious about this stuff and, and curious about how to make films that explore this in, in interesting in adult ways I, oh i definitely give him credit for like i said trying to go out of his comfort zone but it, it feels like uh like a late 70s sexual theme thriller that a better director would have made yeah it's like half and half there's stuff that is that movie and then there's stuff that feels like it's a dirty hairy movie this is a about a divorced father of two he has two young daughters and he is a detective with his own sexual kinks who is investigating a series of sex crimes it, it, it feels like a slasher movie. Well, and it also kind of feels like uh, cruising in the sense that Clint Eastwood is clearly in this lifestyle. Like he is not afraid to go to a prostitute. He's not afraid to go have bondage sex. He's not afraid to like this is a world that he's comfortable in as a cop and as a man, as a guy who goes out and cruises. And so when the murders start happening, 
it's a world that he is already in. And so the implication is it could be him. And certainly the movie for a little while feels like maybe they're going to play it like he could be. And then quickly there's a killer and it's him versus Clint. Yeah, I think the movie falls apart in act in, in the second half because it, it starts to get really repetitive. It does have a really interesting performance by, let me get this right, Jean-Vierre Bougeot. I Again, I like this about Eastwood. I think he picked interesting female leads when they weren't named Sandra Locke. I think he I think he picked interesting and challenging women, women who butted heads with him ably, like I think who really pushed him. And I think Bujold, we're going to see her give another performance this month that I think is unbelievable. And I think she was kind of just in her prime right here. Like she's just doing interesting work and she's very good and she's constantly pushing him. And yeah, a tightrope is it's an interesting one. It definitely was sold as an action movie. And I think. If you even now, if you look at the cover of it or if you look at where it's categorized as a genre film, they still treat it like a cop movie and an action movie. The the things that work about it are the things that make it not work as a typical cop or action movie. You'll be happy to know that Richard Tuggle would have the last laugh because he would go on to direct Anthony Michael Hall in Out of Bounds, whereas Clint Eastwood, what happened to him after Tightrope? Never worked again. Never worked again. That was it. Now we move on from Tightrope to a film that I think would pair well. For example... Tight rope and flashpoint. <laughs> they ain't taking no guff. Which one do you want? The mean one. You're a sick man. They're two good old boys looking for action. Until one day they found something more. What is it about that Jeep? Carson's got the entire Fifth Army out there. Did you have any idea what they were up to? What who was up to, Logan? These are my witnesses. Where are your witnesses? Flashpoint. Who were you? Rated R. This is Chris Christopherson and Treat Williams in a weird thriller about uh, two Border Patrol agents who come across a buried Jeep with a big sack of money and some clues that have something to do with the JFK assassination. Dun, dun, dun. Now, Scott, we are legally obligated to enjoy this film because of the company that produced it and because of the theme that plays at the very beginning of it. This was the first theatrical film from Home Box Office, and it does indeed open with the theme song that we have reworked into our very own theme song here. And uh, as a result, this thing played on HBO incessantly for about four years. Well, as our listeners know, I have a long-standing affection, man crush, fandom, call it what you will, for Treat Williams. And there are some plum Treat Williams in this movie. Some good quiet simmering, some good Treat Williams flipping out. I like him and Chris. I think they're really, I think that's a nice match. How about these for bad guys? How about Rip Torn and Kurtwood Smith? Oh, yeah. Uh, Gene Smart and Tess Harper both pop up in a subplot that kind of goes nowhere. But I wish their movie had been the movie. I wish it had just been Chris Christopherson and Treat Williams find the Jeep, find the money, Gene Smart and Tess Harper show up, and they just hang out. <laughs> Fine with that movie. <laughs> I like the movie when it deals with the procedural stuff of the money that they found, the scrutiny that they might be under, the unhappiness they have at their work, and, and all that, and of course, the, the clues that may or may not have something to do with the JFK assassination. Very interesting. But then... The movie kind of gets bogged down with like their day job stuff. There's subplots in this movie that just go endlessly nowhere. It's part of that that wave of movies in the early 80s that were all fascinated with the border. 
and with border work and with border guards and with what it was like on the border, you know, kind of like magical computers. This is one of those things that we just keep seeing. So, yeah, Flashpoint, it's got a lot of great character actors, a few good moments, and uh, it's all right. You know what movie has a terrific score, Scott? Is it Alan Rudolph's romantic neo-noir Choose Me? It is. Whoa, how did I get that? Of all the films released this year, it's almost like we're reading from the same script. Rented it immediately because John Larroquette was in it. Did not get it, did not like it, forgot about it for 30 years, watched it last week. And yeah, it's a good movie. I really like this film. I like the vibe of this film a lot. I would be willing to bet that before he wrote Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, Steve Soderbergh liked this movie a lot. Kind of a noir setup in which a radio DJ gets a new roommate and her roommate has a mysterious friend played by a, a member of the Carradine family. And that's never a good sign. The, the shadow of AIDS is starting to drop over what had been the sort of free love 60s and then the sexual revolution 70s. And now it's things are getting weirder and more complicated. And Genevieve Bujold in this plays or Genevieve Bujold. She's a sex therapist on the radio, and yet in her personal life is a disaster. It's clear that she has moved from sort of apartment to apartment and situation to situation and lies to everybody and just rolls hand grenades into relationships and situations to see what will happen. So she has stuff to talk about on the radio. And this is the moment where that kind of all comes to a head for her. I think there's definitely an Altman influence in this. You know, Alan Rudolph studied at Robert Altman's feet. And if there was any filmmaker he wanted to be, it was Robert Altman. And unfortunately, I think everybody's sleeping with everybody in too small a circle for the Altman thing to totally work. I would have liked it if maybe they weren't all as connected as they are. Like Ray Don Chong, I love in this movie, love, but I wish she wasn't the wife of the guy who is sleeping with two other people in the movie and then trying to kill it. Like it's too small, but the energy is great. The, the vibe of the movie. I love the sort of the world. And this is the first Alan Rudolph movie that I remember seeing and really being taken with just sort of how the movie felt. Part of that is Teddy Pendergrass and Luther Vandross both wrote music for the film and it's got a cool sound to it. It really doesn't sound like any other movie from the eighties. Um, and then part of it also is just the way it looks. I think the uh, the photography by Jan Klesser is terrific. Can you talk for a moment about the performance of John Larroquette? Night Court's where it clicked for him. And I think a big part of that was they found a comedy persona that worked, which was slimy and yet compelling. Sleazy to a point. But they leaned into that slimy thing, which there's something about Larroquette inherently. I love Larroquette. I think he's a terrific comic actor. I think he's a good dramatic actor. But, you know, you cast people for the things that they can play beautifully. And there's something about Larroquette that feels a little cold and a little bit oily. And there's like an intelligence behind the eyes. He doesn't like you. He's studying you. And there's something about that that works to make him effective and memorable. And I think here, he's an interesting presence. I like the character he's playing, and I really like Keith Carradine, who I don't always like. I think he's pretty terrific in this. Speaking of terrific, she was an innocent in a savage world. 
he was a stranger from a distant land. Their struggle against an overwhelming evil turned into a discovery of overpowering love. Sheena. She alone has the power to save paradise. Hey, what rating is this movie? Dude, good lord. Sheena is based on an old comic strip that should have stayed as an old comic strip. It is Tarzan as a woman, which means you are now watching a movie about a fictional African country that worships a 25-year-old white woman. Super racist. The movie surrounding this questionable premise is laughably bad from the director of the King Kong remake that I hate. Sheena. It's rotten. It is shot like he hated being there, like he resents this movie's existence. It is an unpleasant experience start to finish. Tanya Roberts, God bless her. Somebody told her this was her big break, and she is playing it like she believes it's going to happen. It is not her fault. Oh, God, no. For most of the movie, she's she can handle what they throw at her. But there's a, like romantic drama gets involved and she's asked to actually emote and it's like a better director wouldn't know how to work that. Thing. Oh, well, who's she who's she romantically involved with, Scott? Why would that be difficult to make interesting or effective? Your favorite, the actor's equivalent to Stanford Sherman. Ted Watts. It is disturbing to me how much I love soap and how much I dislike human yawn Ted Wass in his film career. Look, one of the basic requirements, if you're going to cast a movie like this, hey, Ted, there's a lot of running in this film. Um, Before we close your deal, can I stand like 50 feet back and you run for me? Just run 30 feet so I can see what it's going to look like on camera. Oh, never mind. We're not doing this. Is this the final movie, PG movie, to feature bare breasts so prominently? There's one scene in this movie that is crazy explicit where it's a Playboy shoot. Beyond that, the violence in this movie is race driven and really vile in a lot of ways. They flamethrow a village of African natives at one point and it's genocide and it's rated PG and it's in the middle of this movie where she talks to zebras. It does in a few, in a few moments some of the cinematography is quite lovely desantis the photographer has an amazing career dude nobody could have survived the ending of this movie in which she she summons a flock of flamingos to their death to save her that might be one of the craziest endings we'll see this decade And, and that does touch on the the final asset the animals there's some really cool uh trained animal work in this movie sure (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know, you find the good. Hey, the animals were fine. I have nothing bad to say about the zebra. His work is exemplary. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but I have read <laughs> that that zebra was a painted horse. Uh, that's very probably true. And then we move on to a film that I know that I saw in theaters, remembered none of it as a kid, and I feel like I should like it. Why? One day, it's 1943. The next, it's 1984. Somehow we got moved in time. Good Lord, there it is. He has fallen through time, but time is running out. Now we can't stop it, but I believe that you can. Michael Paré, Nancy Allen. Good luck, Sailor. Go! The 
Philadelphia Experiment. Rated PG. Here's my impression of 14-year-old Scott Weinberg walking out of the Philadelphia Experiment. That had nothing to do with Philadelphia. Bullshit! Uh, this is based on an actual hoax or urban legend, call it what you will, that the USS Eldridge disappeared briefly from the Naval Yard in Philadelphia, which we call Penn's Landing, and it's really very beautiful. Not this time of year, it's freezing, but if you come to Philadelphia in, like, May, you come to Penn's Landing, you get yourself a cheesesteak on South Street. Oh, my God, it'll be so nice. Anyway... Nancy Allen is virtually the only thing in this film that comes through uh, unscathed. And it's a goofball time travels story that might have done better, like, as a half-hour TV episode. And there are a few, to be fair, like, time travel, like, ideas that are, like, you know, just by discussing time travel alone, you can have some interesting ideas. But this screenplay is so convoluted, they threw out John Carpenter's screenplay for this? John never finished John's screenplay. This was a script that he he couldn't figure it out. He couldn't crack it. He said there's not a movie in it. It's a great hook, but there's not a movie there. So he kind of petered out and very quickly realized it wasn't going to work. Other assets uh, in the film, early, early, early Tobolowsky. Always a good thing. Yep. With hair. Yeah. <laughs> and that's about it. I, I didn't care for this one. I didn't hate it, but it's just kind of flat. They did the time travel in the direction that made sense for budget. And so he spends a lot of the movie opening Coke cans and going, wow. Wow. True or false, Drew, before we move on, this makes a fairly interesting double feature with the final countdown. Uh, That would be false because that would imply this is interesting. Let's move on to something that's going to be very interesting. Star Wars, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The Sound of Music. In the tradition of these great films about fighting back against the odds, 20th Century Fox presents another milestone in motion picture history. Revenge of the Nerds. Nerds! (laughs) It's time for the odd to get even. as good as you revenge of the nerds their time has come i'd link to that now before we get into the film several of you wrote in or messaged to say that we pulled a boner and that we did not include this in last month's releases i am going to respectfully disagree with you my research indicates that it was studio sneaks and was not an official release until this month august of 1984 And the reason that I think Revenge of the Nerds is confusing is because it did so well that it made the box office charts, and those things typically didn't. So when they did open it August 10th nationwide, it was a hit right away. It was a big movie for them. They did those sneaks because they felt like they had a monster hit on their hands, and it was an audience film that they tested heavily, and they realized this thing plays. I loved this movie when it came out in 94, and I really had a giant reaction to specifically the last eight or nine minutes of this film. And I think most of the good feelings about this movie, the really good feelings about it, come from those last eight or nine minutes. I'm going to give almost all the credit to Robert Carradine for pulling some sincerity out of a really ridiculous film. And selling the idea at the end that everybody at some point is an outcast or feels like a nerd. And I think the movie taps that feeling very well. To me, I didn't think of it much deeper than just like Bachelor Party is this kind of forbidden fruit because it's kind of sexy and I shouldn't be watching it. But it's still just a comedy. 
I saw this probably when I was 15 and I thought it was hilarious. Rewatching it, I still think a good third of it or maybe even half of it has a lot of good natured humor. And now my perspective is I've never seen a movie more at war with itself. I think Revenge of the Nerds scene to scene is wildly opposed to itself. Like there's moments where, yes, they'll do a joke that I think is inclusive and interesting and and tries to be progressive. And then they will do a joke that is mean and ugly. I am really torn this time through because I think the performers, all of them, Give it 100%. Most of these movies, when these movies work, whether it's Police Academy or it's this or it's whatever the ensemble comedy is, when they work, they work largely because you end up liking the ensemble and you like the way the chemistry works and the way these characters sort of pop. And in this one, I think a large part of the affection for this movie is affection for the ensemble of Curtis Armstrong and Timothy Buzzfield and Anthony Edwards and Robert Carradine. I think Larry B. Scott works really hard in this film. I want to separate what I'm about to say from how I feel about him. I think Larry B. Scott does everything he's asked to do. And I think he does it better than it works on the page. There are little touches in how he plays Lamar that I think are really sweet and funny. But the scene where they have him throw the limp-wristed javelin might be one of the cruelest homophobic sight gags ever on film. And it's so unnecessary in a film that's supposed to be about inclusion that you just wonder, how do you make this movie say the things you say and not realize how ugly you're being? The main problem that I have with the movie, among several, is that the point is we win by becoming the scumbags that we hate. A hundred percent. And that is what, as a kid, I didn't get. Like That would be like if Star Wars ends because Mark Hamill gets to be Darth Vader. What is upsetting and what is deeply wrong with this film is that that victory hinges on disgusting, criminal behavior where they are worse than anything that's done to them. They don't even get like horrible, horrible, inordinately horrible revenge on the boys who fucked with them. They take the revenge out on the women. Every time Revenge of the Nerds comes up, I try my hardest to think back on, hey, Scott, what did you think of that? Hey, that's my pie. Now, even at 15 or 16, I know that's wrong. I guess I would have said that's why it's funny. But again, the movie never plays it as wrong. The the movie has her enjoy it. The movie lets him off the hook immediately which is fucking insane. It's an insane way to play that scene. When I talk about a movie at war with itself, look at things like the Bernie Casey scene where he comes to the party. There are so many things in that sequence where it feels like they're doing it right. For example, when the girls don't show up and Judy offers to call her uh, sorority sisters, Booger's reaction at first is he calls them pigs. But watch Booger when they come through the door. Fourth woman through that door, he is 100% on board for this party from that point on, and he has a great time. By the end of that party, everybody is having a great time. And it's not, oh, we've settled. It's, oh, we've realized we had the wrong idea in our head, and these people are great, and we're having a great party because we're all cool. That's not a bad scene, and there's great ideas in that scene. And then the movie just immediately changes gears again and has them go do that penny raid. Then they wire the house to watch them. And then they are printing like the nerds are 
awful human beings in this movie. Everything they do is disproportionate. Every response they have escalates things to a criminal level, yet they're supposed to be our heroes. It's bizarre. There is a lot of good stuff in the movie. It's just couched by so much ugliness that it's I laugh like- at John Goodman. I think John Goodman is very funny in this. I think that Donald Gibb is very funny as Ogre. I love Michelle Mayrink. And look, again, we've talked about Joy of Sex earlier. I think it's really remarkable that her performance in this, where she plays Judy, and then her performance next year in Real Genius, in both of those, she's playing sort of a hyper nerd girl. Yet, I know people who don't realize they're the same actress. She's totally different versions of what easily could have been the same character. She's really talented. I think if you're going to get upset about Long Duck Dong, I think you have to be 1,000 times more upset by Takashi. I think Takashi is crazy racist in this movie. His character literally just spins an entire party taking pictures, ha ha ha, and saying hair pie, hair pie over and over. That's not a joke. It's not even a attempt at a joke. The racism is filthy. The homophobia is filthy. It goes way deeper than than just one scene. And I I think that's what I want to emphasize. I fell for it when I was 14, and I really believe that the ending of that movie, that last scene, that speech is what I remembered. And part of it is that they play Queen, We Are the Champions, which is there's nobody on earth who can resist that song. It's the most effective song of all time. It's a cheap shortcut after a mean-spirited movie, and I think I feel bad that I ever defended it. One of the things that I do see is the people that get mad preemptively when you bring this movie up get mad because it was special to them, and they feel like it told them it's okay to be a nerd. I just wish that they didn't get that message confused with this horrifying film. You nailed it. It's mean-spirited. And I could take a lot of raunch. I'm a grown man. I could take a lot of ugly comedy. I could take a lot of sex comedy. But I don't like mean-spirited shit. It doesn't age well. I should feel good about the revenge at the end of this movie, and I don't. That's ultimately my problem. Let's move on to a film that also fell just a few notches in my estimation, but still held it together long enough. I had a, a, a decent time with Cloak and Dagger. He's killing me, and you're after me! It started as a game. Now they are playing for keeps. Trying to kill us! Fire! And the only person who believes in him is a legendary agent named Flack. Dagger. Rated PG. Starts Friday at select theaters. Check newspapers for locations. This is a kid who has emotional problems and really does need therapy. It's not just a kid with a fanciful imagination. That's the key. And it's about a kid who is uh, uh, in a fantasy world of spies. He loves espionage stories and he sees his, uh, his hero, Jack Flack. I got excited because Jack Flack is played by Dabney Coleman and we get him not once but twice. In this movie, Dabney Coleman is the best. Dabney Coleman is first rate. Two, two big Dabney Coleman's for the price of one. Double Dabney. Dabney Coleman is first rate. A kid gets a secret formula that's hidden inside of an Atari cartridge, and a brie moronic henchman chase him all around San Antonio for a day and a half. And it's very slight and silly. It moves quickly. Henry Thomas is great. Dabney Coleman is Jack Flack. Pretty fun. Even better as Dabney Coleman's dad. Smart touch. As Henry Thomas's dad, you mean? What did I say? 
You said as Dabney Coleman's dad. I wonder what Dabney Coleman's dad was like. First rate. I wonder if Dabney Coleman's dad was called Dabney. <laughs> oh, man. Here's the thing. Coming off of Psycho 2, I thought Tom Holland and Richard Franklin were the shit. I thought that was a great movie. This is Hitchcock, but it's the other Hitchcock. This is the man who knew too much. The kid who knew too much. Yeah, it's the kid who knew too much. It's it's a kid who, because he's in the wrong stairwell and he's playing spy, ends up in a real spy story. I think what's interesting is, and one of the reasons that in talking to people who did love this movie and really hold it dear, I kept hearing over and over that it was a father-son thing for them. That this is one of those movies that punched that father-son button. And what you said, that Henry Thomas has real emotional difficulties in this movie, this is why I really hated that opening never-ending story scene. Because they set up, your mom died, you have emotional difficulties, get it together, and then we never see dad again. That's thrown away. This is woven throughout the entire film, and Dabney's really struggling. He's really watching his kid in pain, and that kid is not getting better. And I think that that, that thread in this movie is played well. And I agree with you. I think the father version of Dabney is the interesting version. I love that the spy looks like his dad because clearly that's the projection that's going on is he needs his dad to be a different person than he is. And the movie's all about realizing that his real dad is the hero that he needs and the person that he needs. And all of that tracks and all of that works. And I would argue that if you love this movie and it is special to you, it's probably because of that ending. I think the movie is uneven. But I think it lands its last big punch. And I think Henry Thomas is heartbreaking at that age. Like, he really does play it as a kid who's got troubles and can't handle them and can't even verbalize them. And it's very amiable. It's very likable. There's no real missteps. It's, uh, you know, it's also got Bill Forsyth as the original uber nerd. I'm with you. I think it's okay. I think it's good as it goes along. It's fine. And I think the video game stuff is awkward. I wish it had just been spy stuff. Like, he just liked old spy movies. There's shots in this movie where they frame the Atari case, like, available now in stores. But yet, ironically, the game, Cloak and Dagger, that it was supposed to be was called Agent X, and it was never finished for the Atari 5200. So you couldn't even buy the game they were advertising in Cloak and Dagger. Also, bonus praise, I didn't write her name down, but the little girl who plays Henry Thomas's best friend. Christina Negra from Twilight Zone, the movie. She's great. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Drew, now here's a funny one. You had never seen Cloak and Dagger. Now, when it comes to our next film, I had seen it piecemeal. And the last time I had ever seen any part of this movie was in 1988. So essentially, I was in many ways entirely brand new to The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. I think a lot of times when you try at being weird cult film, you fail because it's just something that a lot of times has to happen naturally. Having said that, Buckaroo Banzai is an exception to that rule simply because it's so fucking cool. Buckaroo, President's on line one calling about is everything okay with the alien space club from Planet 10 or should he just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. I've been obsessed with this movie since before it came out. I'm going to get my one complaint out of the way, and then we'll just go on to a love fest. 
There is a phenomenal ensemble. And by that, I mean both the character actors and the goofy, iconic characters that they're playing. However, there's only one woman and she spends half the movie tied to a bench. Well, not half. A third of the movie tied to a bench. This is pulp. This is 100% Doc Savage pulp. All I'm saying is if you got eight or 12 of these crazy colorful characters, more than one should be a woman. That's it. And today, and today it would be. It just, you know, you're talking about 1984, and it's a, it's, th- that was not what pulp was. Pulp didn't do that. I think the pure density of the invention in this movie is what makes it so much fun to me. They created a neurosurgeon, physicist genius, rock star, <laughs> test pilot who fights aliens while he's on tour and doing operations. And all of this is set up in like 10 minutes. Yeah, and they set up so much in that first 10 minutes. There is so much that happens that I think a lot of audiences probably just check the fuck out. I can't blame them. This is not a movie that is terribly interested in holding your hand. But this feels in a good way, like issue number five of a comic book, and you can't find the other eight. Well, that's... It's the only it's the only one you have. But see, that's what was so brilliant is you want to talk about falling in love as much as I love the movie. What really did it was the novel and the novel by Earl MacRoch is loaded with footnotes and asterisks and references to other adventures and earlier novels from the series and is clearly number 17 of a series. It is so good at the way it baits that hook and builds the rest of that world out and implies all these other adventures and things that it references as if you should know what's going on. You either at some point decide that's fun and you're going to enjoy that or you get frustrated and you just tune out. And man, I walked in that theater head over heels already. I was in love. And then I saw John Lithgow. You want to talk about a performance that you just immediately know, I'm going to watch this for the rest of my life, and every time I do, I'm going to smile. His accent is literally Spanish and German at the same time. (laughs) He's a nut, and it's such a delightful Because he is an alien living in a human body. He's been trapped here for decades and he wants to go home. And so there's moments where the alien is completely in charge. There's moments where the old Emilio Elizardo is still in charge. And that battle of personalities is a feast for a ham bone like John Lithgow, who's going to play both sides of it so incredibly well. You surround him with Christopher Lloyd. The movie is kind of the epitome of leave him wanting more because I was fascinated by Perfect Tommy, played by Lewis Smith. I liked, I wanted him to get his own movie. Uh, Jeff Goldblum as the new addition to the force, playing a, a, a cowboy rock singer called New Jersey. I love uh, that he picked his name. He's <laughs> so good. Carl Lumley as multiple alien creatures. I, I don't know. I don't get it. I've only seen it once. There's so much dry humor in this movie that works. Oh, Clancy Brown as Rawhide. What's that pineapple for? Uh, well, I'll tell you later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of movie that I should have seen eight or ten times by now, you know. But no, I, I, I've only seen it now, I guess, twice. And it's clearly a movie that has cast a very long shadow. Um, I 
remember when I saw a very early test screening of The Life Aquatic, and it got to the closing credits, and they start marching in formation. The idea that they had made a mainstream movie that ended with a reference to Buckaroo Banzai's closing credits. Love this movie or hate it, anywhere in between. Can you imagine funding this? Can you imagine like actually looking at this and going, hey man, Mr. Richter, Mr. Rouch, I love this. This weird and kooky. I would definitely pay five bucks to go see it. I'm not putting $5 million into this. No, as much as I love it, no. And I've been fascinated watching them try to get it back off the ground. You know, there was a period where Fox was very close to making a television series. And the pilot was very much Buckaroo Banzai. When you read it, it read like this. It read just as dense and just as wacky. I'm so happy they didn't make it because I think going back at this point, it'll be too self-conscious. They'll fuck it up. There's no way to make this again. I think there's a lot of old properties you can kind of revisit and make it new again in many ways, but something this unique. It's an accident. It's an accident that it's this wonderful. Let's just say as a discovery, not a complete discovery, but as a 90% discovery for me, I can say that Buckaroo Banzai plays well to new eyes. So if you've been intimidated by this uh, cult item, watch it. It is unique, and I, I, I really had a good time with it. Drew clearly loves it. And now let's move on to a film that I loved back then, and I will tell you in a minute if I still love it, Dreamscape. The last unknown region of the human mind is about to be explored. The world of your dreams. The passion. The nightmare. The mystery. When you close your eyes, the adventure begins. Dreamscape, rated PG-13, starts Wednesday at a selected theater near you. This is one of the first movies to me that feels like other filmmakers emulating both the delivery and the fantasy sensibilities of Spielberg. Oh, it's 100% in the shadow of Poltergeist. Um, It's also, I think, in the shadow of Stephen King in a major way. I think there's a whole lot of fire starter in here. Follow me here. Dennis Quaid plays a psychic of some sort who is enlisted by a secret government facility run by the awesome Max von Schudau. His job, believe it or not, because he has psychic ability and they have technology heretofore unseen by human eyes, Dennis Quaid will now have the ability to climb into people's dreams and help them solve their psychological issues. Great idea. It is a fun concept, man. And for the most part, I think the movie nails it. I, I think there's one diversion that involves a, a henpecked husband and blah, 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 goes nowhere. Other than that, every time they kind of go under and deal with the dream world, it's pretty cool. I think it's okay. The There are so many movies in a very short period of time, this sort of genre of psychics as the center of these thrillers, and they all inevitably are about the government and the government program, and then you don't want to do it, and then you're going to kill them, and then there's the president's amount of... They're all very much the same. I'm more interested in the notion of using the therapy and then dealing with somebody who is a genuine psychopath, like a nut. David Patrick Kelly, man, typecast as a sniveling, rotten bastard, but goddamn, you get typecast for a reason, and it's because you're good at something. And and if that's not enough, rotten bastard senior Christopher Plummer, ladies and gentlemen. You got Max von Sydow, David Patrick Kelly, and Christopher Plummer? 
come on, some movies have no villains, and this movie has this? The moments that work well are moments where they really embrace how weird dreams can be or how much you can bend that reality. And I and I think the moments where it's less effective are when he gets really conventional in the government thriller stuff. I did have a cringer moment when it was Dennis Quaid inserted himself into the dream of Kate Capshaw and they made 80s love. Um, and here I'm going to surprise you a bit because I often say unkind things about her in Temple of Doom and then again in Best Defense. I think Kate Capshaw is quite good in this one. The whole thing strikes me as it's okay. Scott, that movie was, if I'm not mistaken, released with what rating? Drew, I believe the second ever PG-13 film. In terms of release. So what was the first? Calumet, Colorado. Population 8200. Before the sun sets, foreign soldiers will march victorious through the streets. School students will take to the mountains, fight for freedom, and become a symbol to unite America. Not bad for a bunch of kids. Wolverines! Red Dawn, rated PG-13. For those of you who are going to tell us that we're pulling boners, the first film given the PG-13 won't be out until December because it sat on a shelf for a while, and it's called The Flamingo Kid. Theatrically, Red Dawn counts. Red Dawn's the one that introduced the rating to us. And then we got three this month. We got this, we got Dreamscape, and Woman in Red. Now that we've noted the first and the second and third, let's just forget it. Because Drew and I, neither of us care at all about movie ratings. What I do find kind of ironic is that while Red Dawn is the first ever PG-13 film to be released, it also made the Guinness Book of World Records for being the most violent film at the time, which tells me it still should have been R, fucker. So they were blowing it, as far as violence is concerned, they were blowing it on the PG-13 from movie number one. I find it weird that somebody would call this the most violent film ever made, though. By what standard? Yeah, it's a good question. Because I'm pretty sure I... that Okay, the year before, I, the shower scene in Scarface is more violent than anything in this movie. I thought this movie was pretty badass. I think I saw it opening night. At the AMC Leo Mall Twin. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about right wing politics. Would have gone right over my head. I just thought it was a pretty cool action movie. And since the heroes were kids, hey, kids get to be the heroes. G.I. Joe. Watching it now, <laughs> it plays like a comedy. It's flat out weird that I'm a John Millie's fan at all. Because I think politically he and I could not be more radically different. But I, I like a lot of his films. I just, and you would think based on my age that this would be one of them or it would have been the gateway movie, but. It's just that this movie is so goofy in a lot of ways, but boy, it could be a fucking really interesting movie. And this just isn't. I think the greatest thing about this movie is that image that's on the poster. And that's the best thing in the movie is the actual invasion and the chaos. And that sort of. I don't know. Best thing in the movie, I think is named Harry Dean Stanton. Boys! That was a very potent image, and I think it's just as strong an image in terms of selling a movie to an audience as, uh, whatever, a decade later when they blew up the White House for the Independence Day trailer. It had that same kind of impact. It felt like a, wow, holy crap, violation of what we considered normal. And it coming out in 1984 when Russian paranoia was at the absolute, I think, highest that it was for us as kids, it was a very potent fantasy. And it didn't work for me. Part of it is that I don't really have the military fantasy. I didn't have as a kid. I didn't like to play army. I thought it was a shitty thing to play. 
I don't have the fantasy of picking the gun up and running and killing all the bad guys. And the it didn't, for me, play as wish fulfillment. And to say that it didn't land for me does not mean that I'm saying that it was non-influential. There is no denying that this movie definitely influenced a generation. And I would wager that if you were to talk to a ton of people that are in the military that are our age, this movie is one of the reasons that they made that decision. It at least helped lead them to that as a possibility. It's like Star Trek. When you talk to people that work in space and in sort of certain sciences, they'll all talk about Star Trek. They saw it as a kid. I've met many people that went into the military and Red Dawn was a huge, huge movie for them in the 80s as kids where they saw it and they went, oh man, absolutely, I would be a Wolverine. The scene that you... uh we're referring to earlier when you talk about Harry Dean Stanton um, is another one of those things where I think when people love this movie, they have certain moments that they remember. And that's a, a big one. Harry Dean is really good in it. But I think when you dig deeper, it's just very facile and silly. You know, the script by Kevin Reynolds, the original script before John Millius came on, I think was less sort of of the moment. And Millius 100% like leaned into the idea that he got to make this this war movie on American soil. And that was, I think, really exciting to him. There's a sense of him getting to play with some toys here. And it's just a weird movie for me. Like, I have a very strange reaction to it overall. I, I, Like I said, I have a hard time rooting for it just because I don't. I will say this in its defense. It's a very nicely shot movie. Uh, it might be nonsense, but it's pretty nonsense. So there's there's some you know there's some fun stuff in it. It's just uh, a lot sillier than I remember, and it's uh, infinitely better than its remake. One thousand percent. So that's it. August eighty four. Holy crap, uh, guys! The next three months are going to be very big months. In fact, next time, Charles Bronson keeps it sleazy. Mario Van Peebles bad guys it up. Steve Martin reminds us just how great a physical comic he can be. And would you like to see an unofficial Fast Times at Ridgemont High sequel? Or how about the first, but not last, big giant farming movie of the year? Uh, John Sayles breaks through. Ken Russell cranks the perv up to 11. And we get two giant celebrated movie adaptations of stage sensations. All of that when we return in January for September of 1984. And wait, before you say what... It's true. We're going to take a little break because Scott and I have worked very hard for the last two and a half years on this show. Uh, But have no fear. We've got a very cool something special for you in the meantime that will introduce new listeners to the show. I think give you guys who aren't patron subscribers a chance to hear some of the cool bonus stuff we've done. And after all, there is nothing more 80s than a good montage. So we'll see you back here very soon.